Okay, here, here's a story idea I think we should all mull over. It's a science fiction murder mystery where it's just a ton of clones of Don Knotts in various costumes playing a real-life game of Clue. <laughs> one of the Don Knotts has been murdered, and the other ones have to figure out which one of them done it before they're all murdered by a Don Knot. I think it'd be fun to have a detective one instead of just the Clue players. Like, you could have a Colonel Mustard Don Knotts, but you should also have, like, a, a, you know, the, the Deer Hunter Watson situation going on as well. You have a fat Don Knotts, and you have a, a Sherlock Don Knotts. I'm sorry, no. Uh, I'm, I'm going to change this up. This is actually going to be murder by death with Don Knotts's. So you're going to have, like, the Hercule Perot and then just, like, all sorts of racial stereotypes as Don Knotts. Would there also be a sexy femme fatale Don Knotts? Yes, there should be. Wait, are we doing Crisis on Infinite Earths but with Don Knotts? I'm fine taking all the Knotts and putting them together. The Incredible Mr. Olympic can be there. I don't care. Just fine. Load them up. There's suddenly an explosion. They all they point at out. each other. He did it. They walk outside. There's a crash spaceship and reluctant astronaut Don Knotts walks out stoic. He's fucking Han Solo. <laughs> well, now I'm out of things to say. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp. I don't have my notes in front of me, so I've actually forgotten the thing I said 10,000 times to introduce this show. <laughs> This is Serial. I'm Sarah. God damn it. Where am I? I have a glass. What do I do? Hello, folks. Welcome to Box Office Paul, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. I'm your host, Cody. Joining me today is my co-host, Jamie. And in spirit, somewhere in the nether, is Mike. Ethereal whooshing noises in the subtitles. Lost like tears in the rain. <sighs> I'll miss him. You know what else I'll miss, Jamie? Hmm. Half of the content that's on Netflix. <laughs> We were discussing this earlier. Like, it is amazing how if you do not catch a movie the second it hits, you that movie just does not exist to you. Do do a little experiment, folks at home. Uh, just go to Wikipedia and look up the list of original films distributed by Netflix. There's an entire page that's kept up to date. It's organized by year and genre, and it just shows all of the original programming, movie-wise, that Netflix has pumped out since 2015. And it's astounding because so many of these I have never heard of before. Jamie, do you know what coin heist is? That, that's not a movie. That's just two words together. Uh, according to the wiki entry, coin heist is a, believe it or not, heist film uh, that premiered January 6, 2017. It's an hour and 37 minutes. It's in English. That's all I know about it. Uh, it does have a wiki page with a very short write-up and a poster that shows a hand holding... Uh, a gray blob in the shape of a coin. I'll probably never watch Coin Heist. We don't need to spend more time on it. I'm just pointing out, there's a shit ton of shows Netflix has produced that I will probably never get around to or never even knew existed. You are going to feel like an asshole whenever you're at a party a couple of years from now and somebody throws on Coin Heist and it is the raddest shit you've ever seen. I'm not saying it's bad in any way. I have no idea what it is. It just snuck by me. And that's what freaks me out about Netflix. There's so many pieces of entertainment they put out that have vanished. I've never gotten to even be familiar with. And so many pieces of entertainment they've put out that have been pushed down the pipeline by other pieces of entertainment that I, I just spaced them out. Like, uh, do you remember that Mogli, the, the Legend of the Jungle, finally came out on Netflix last yeah, that year? Was, that was like a blip. That movie, that Andy Circus directed Jungle Book movie that people had been waiting years for, was finally released. And it kind of came and went, okay, the, the Orson Welles film, oh He Died God. Before Filming, was finally completed. It and I, dropped one weekend, and it gone. came and went. I was so excited about that, and I haven't even watched it yet. So It's a double-edged sword with how streaming works now. Like Word of mouth and buzz is so important, because... In a lot of these releases, they're skewing like any substantial marketing campaign at all, which works great whenever Stranger Things drops one Friday afternoon and breaks the internet. But it is sad to think of how many amazing films have been released that just came and went or are just going to be buried on that app for people uh, to just maybe discover one day, just searching for things at random. 
And it, it seems like the ones that stick with us are the ones that basically get stuck in Twitter's throat and everyone has to fight about. Mostly, I'm trying to work our way towards the Irishman, the real reason we're recording this episode. That came out not that long ago, a month ago, not even a month ago. It's uh, December 17th as we're recording this. That came out November 27th. And it feels like it's been decades because people have been arguing over everything Martin Scorsese has said for like the past two months. And it's it's astounding because, boy, could you imagine the same discourse happening about Casino? God, turn the back of the clock just a couple of years. Could you imagine this, that discourse being about the Wolf of Wall Street? Like, it's fascinating uh, seeing a big-ass deal, Martin Scorsese release, kind of being batted back and forth like a tennis ball around the internet, the same way we treat things like Bright. And with The Irishman, too, because the movie is three hours and 29 minutes long, I've got a suspicion a giant portion of people talking about the movie have not actually sat down and watched it all. They, they probably are aware of it or have seen the trailer, but I'm going to guess so many people who are kind of criticizing the Marvel versus Scorsese debate they haven't sat down to watch the film. Like this, The movie itself is incidental to the points they're arguing, which is such a weird idea. The movie doesn't matter. It's the conversation the movie spits out that matters. To be fair, you just described a fairly significant chunk of modern movie discourse. Yeah, yeah, true. But if you haven't seen The Irishman, uh, buckle down, because guess what? This is a surprise bop in a movie commentary. <laughs> and as you say, that bar is coming to the viewer's house. Ooga, ooga. Uh, don't I hope worry. you brought sex, motherfucker. <laughs> the pre-show entertainment is going to be six underground. Don't worry, that's only two hours and eight minutes, and then we'll get to The Irishman. Uh, could you imagine... A Michael Bay film opening for a Scorsese film, like it's like Bobcat Gold the way to the beginning of a metal show. Oof. I uh, okay, so I will say this: uh, Sunday to prep for this episode, I sat down, I watched the Packers play, and I decided it's just going to be Netflix the rest of the day. So I watched uh, in this order: Dolomite is my name, followed by Six Underground, followed by The Irishman. That was my day; just those three movies. <laughs> In a row, and it was a roller coaster. I will tell you that. You saw the unfettered schism of all cinema in a single afternoon. It was fascinating because, yeah, that's what Netflix provides. It's not like they have one set type of movie they produce and they do it over and over. They're they're pushing out everything, like comedies and dramas and action movies, sci-fi pieces, horror films. They're after it all, which is so weird. I can just sit down at my house and really watch three movies that were so well furnished, they really could have played in any cinema. It was all just going on right on my TV. This wasn't like, oh, they cut corners to get this on Netflix. These were expensive-looking movies. I feel old is what I'm saying. I'm not that old, but it makes me feel like the, the future is now. I'm being terribly, terribly convenienced, and I'm not having any of it. <laughs> I remember the Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, and it's a budget of $3. That's the amazing thing about the Netflix business model in their movies and their shows. Like, there's a lot of stuff you can criticize there with maybe, in some cases, them casting so big of a net that a lot of smaller things don't really get the attention they deserve. But it is interesting to see the reverse of, okay, instead of making a handful of things for everybody, we're going to make one movie for a handful of people, but every handful of people that exists, every <laughs> subgroup is going to get catered to in their own way. And it's just so weird because you you would kind of think if you were familiar with the start of Netflix and kind of the quality of the movies they picked up, that it wouldn't be worth checking out these new releases. But you never know. Some of these are amazing and some of these are really terrible. And it, there's a giant leap. Roma premiered on goddamn Netflix. Love and the now. Irishman, I, I have some negative things to say about the Irishman, but overall, like, it's hard to ignore the quality in the movie. My my complaints basically boil down to, like, personal preference kind of bullshit. I, I think you can't argue the actual quality and craftsmanship that went into the film itself, which blows my mind. We now have, like, Oscar contenders that are appearing next to movies that should be forgotten immediately. No two ends about it. You have the best and the worst thrown out with the same amount of ado. There's something very democratic about that that I kind of like. I I love how Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese have to go to the same party. (laughs) 
I just never know what to expect when I turn on a Netflix movie, which is weird. It's it's getting more positive, though, because I remember a couple of years ago, if you told me it was a Netflix-produced movie, I'd probably be like, eh. Normally, I'd say I just rented it, but now it's free and on my TV, and I don't even know if I want to bother. I'm still very bitter about the Cloverfield Paradox situation. <laughs> Look, we're all very sorry about the Cloverfield Paradox. That's why we just don't talk about it as a culture anymore. That's fine. We're not going to go there. Let's Let's focus on the more recent stuff. So this is this is such a weird idea to me that the Irishman couldn't get financed anywhere else. That's a podcast all of its own. Yeah, and when you watch it, you can see why. It's not really action-packed. It's not supposed to be. It's Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci and, you know, just other mainstays of Scorsese basically putting on acting clinics. Everyone in the movie is amazing. They're just wonderful to watch. The CGI de-aging is interesting to see from a non-Marvel perspective. I wouldn't say it's incredibly successful. You just kind of learn to deal with it after a while. No one will ever be Kurt Russell. I am. It's just a weird thing because you watch the movie and you have no idea how old Robert De Niro is supposed to be throughout the movie at any given point. Well, that's a problem with De Niro in general. He's always had that thing where like up until like 15 years ago, he was of no particular age. <laughs> One that really throws me off here is there's basically the, the breakdown of the story is uh, De Niro is an old man in a retirement home and he is telling you his life story in kind of a jumbled way where you hit all sorts of different phases of his life at different points. It doesn't follow a linear path. Uh, the biggest thing he's focusing on is his relationship to uh, Jimmy Hoffa. So we go back to the start of De Niro's character's life and this is after World War II. He's a, a truck driver. His truck breaks down, and, and Joe Pesci comes to help him figure out what's wrong with his vehicle so he can get back on the road. He's just like a friendly, nice guy who's trying to help out, who happens to try to, you know, be a, a mob boss. Pesci keeps referring to De Niro as boy, like, throughout the whole thing. Or, like, a kid. <laughs> De Niro, even with the de-aging, looks like he's 60 years old. <laughs> and this is coming from a de-aged Pesci, who looks like he's the same age. <laughs> Again, Joe Pesci, I think, was born 58, so that's a, uh, that, that's a hard task for any studio. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm just sitting there like, well, give me a date. There was probably a date flash on the screen and I missed it, but it's like I have no idea in the world how old this man is supposed to be. <laughs> and this is like his origin story. I don't know. I do wonder how much of that has to do with just movement. Like, you can oh, yeah. age down an actor all you want, but the second they start moving around like an old man moves very differently from even somebody like in their forties. Like we saw that with Sam Jackson and Captain Marvel. And that's a great point because there are several scenes in this movie where De Niro walks up to somebody, shoots them several times in the face and then has to skedaddle away. But it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure they're not using a body double for De Niro. He, he does his old man jog away and it's like, Oh, he is never going to evade capture. This this man's not getting far. Super Irishman run away. They can they can mimic the looks, but like you said, the body movement it ain't there. So that aspect of the movie is a little bit of a letdown, but that's still a fairly young technology. Thinking about it, you know, they really started pushing that hardcore with Tron Legacy, which wasn't all that long ago. Oh, it astonishes me how quickly that technology has changed. Like Clue is a fucking monster. There I said it. A monster. <laughs> well, we already knew that. He wants that. genocide. He's evil. And then it's like just a couple of years later, we're seeing a sexy-ass young Michael Douglas and Ant-Man. <laughs> that effect really did blow my mind when I was in theaters. Like, you're watching Ant-Man, he just walks out and he's young. It's like, what the fuck? And it gets more impressive each time. You look back at it now, you think it's kind of silly. But I had the same feeling watching something like uh, Pirates of the Caribbean you know, you'd walk out, oh, there's a man with a tentacle face. That looks so good. It's like it's real. And nowadays you look back and you go, okay, well, Davy Jones isn't perfect, but it's still pretty good. It's just amazing the leaps and bounds they keep making on all this stuff. I can't wait to see what it's like in 10 years. Oh, I, I've said this many times. By 2025, all movies will be deep fakes. <laughs> Actors will just pay a licensing fee and then we'll just see, I don't know, homeless people. With, like, Daisy Ridley's face just placed on top of them. But, uh, going beyond Robert De Niro using science to travel through time using only his face, what did you think about the movie as a whole? Again, because it is three and a half hours, 
maybe if I were sitting in a theater, I'd be so absorbed by this thing, I wouldn't notice the length. But because I'm watching it in my house, on a still a fairly big TV, like, I got distracted. I made a meal at one point, just let the movie play. I was putting some Legos together, so I did that for a while while watching the movie in the background. The exact opposite of how you should ever treat a movie you want to seriously analyze. And it's just, it's too easy to watch a movie for the first time in your house because you, you miss so much. There's so many other distractions. You can just get up and go to the bathroom and think, oh, I'll pause the movie. And then you come back and you like check email or you do something else or you take out the garbage, pick up your mail. And you realize, oh, the movie's been on pause for like three hours. The longer a movie is, the more I think it would benefit by being able to watch it first in a theater. Repeat viewings is great because you can watch it in chunks. You can be like, great, I'm going to watch just the first 30 minutes of The Irishman uh, before I take this phone call. Or I got back from work, I've got an hour before I want to go to bed, let's just watch one hour of this massive movie. Especially with The Irishman because it does not have a very tight plot. It's not driving the whole time to get you to an ending. Uh, Spoilers for history, Jimmy Hoffa dies. And you feel like, oh, that should be the end of the film. And you realize there's still like another 30 or 40 minutes left. And that's just kind of like the emotional wrap up. Like, oh, ah, here you go. Let's let's catch up on Robert De Niro in the nursing home. It's not bad filmmaking by any stretch, but it's not one that's going to get you pumped to go outside and like start running around and beating up people. It's not like when you get done with a James Bond movie, you want to race cars and fight spies. This is a movie that's like, oh, now I feel very sad. And this took a long time to get here. I feel like that's appropriate for a movie about the mob, though. I think it'd oh, it be is. responsible if uh, Scorsese left you pumped about organized crime. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go Pacoma. Thank you, Martin, for encouraging me in my career. It's specifically framed to make it look like the, the violent life this man has lived was not all that rewarding. It's, it's you know, a morality tale. I'm fascinated by the trilogy that Goodfellas casino and the irishman are going to be like yeah they're going to be fascinating to like to view as a whole seeing scorsese in his own way kind of do the rio bravo thing of like i'm just gonna make this movie at different times in my career when i have (laughs) completely different perspectives on both filmmaking and life as a whole that's probably a great way to think of it because this is yeah such a different story in tone i would say from goodfellas even if you think, okay, it's it's about gangsters and a life in flashback. But yeah, these these are, you know, totally different films from perspective. Uh, now I'm sad because I don't think The Irishman will ever come out on Blu-ray, so I can't, like, stack those up somewhere and show them off as a triple feature. And and we were talking about this earlier, but I'll get back into it, because, boy, it just blows my mind. The Haunting of Hill House is not only on Blu-ray, it's an extended cut of all the episodes. I don't, I, I don't think a huge amount was added back in, but there's altogether something like 12 minutes, if I remember right. Plus, there's some commentary tracks. Typically, when Netflix puts something out, they either go, eh, fuck it, DVD is good enough, or, eh, it's the movie, enjoy. They don't give you extra features or extra content. That blows my mind that they apparently had such a good relationship with Flanagan, they would put this out on physical media with bonuses that you couldn't get through Netflix itself. It's it's wild to me. I love it. It's so cool. Like, oh, man. I'm so glad I can hold this in my hands. I ran out and bought a copy right away, and I could even find it in a Best Buy. It was so great. I'm very curious if that's perhaps Netflix testing the waters. Because they've done physical releases of like their big popular shows and the Marvel stuff. I wonder if they're, they're maybe thinking to themselves, okay, we all know horror fans are different. Maybe if we start putting our horror stuff that's getting a lot of notoriety like out on Blu-ray and DVD, that will be a tremendous boon for us. Because people like us, like we don't give a shit if it's on Netflix. We we want the Scream Factory edition. Along the, those lines, uh, Jamie, are you aware the movie Beneath came out oof, quite a while back, like uh, 2010s? No... Larry Fassenden movie, maybe even made for TV, I'm not sure. Basically, a bunch of kids get in a canoe, paddle across a lake, and get attacked by a giant fish. That That's the whole movie. It's just these kids are trapped on a lake while a fish attacks them. Slowly. I looked it up the other day because I had my eye on it for a while. It was like $15. And I bought it just because I saw Larry had a commentary on it. And I was like, fuck it, Scream Factory, send me that copy. And I watched it twice yesterday, once plain as to figure out what was happening, and then another time after I realized I did not like the movie, just so I could listen to the commentary track. (laughs) And I don't regret that purchase in any way. 
what we're saying is we're stupid and we will pay you money to punch us in the face. Please do. As long as there are extras. Please. And even if there's not, I'll still consider it. Like, I don't think there were any extras on the physical release of Stranger Things. And there's zero chance Netflix ever stops playing Stranger Things. Like, they own that one outright. They're not going to ever take it down. I still own both seasons of Stranger Things on Blu-ray. Mostly because it was at Target and it came in a fancy box that looked like a VHS tape. Plus, whenever you have dates over, you like to point at it and say, Look, I have the internet in my home. <laughs> I, ha- I have contained it like a god. I control it. That's that's a whole different story, though. I, I will just stress one more time. If you put them out on physical media, I will buy. I know one person isn't enough to make that worthwhile, but please, don't you love me? <laughs> Going back to the stuff I watched over the weekend, though. The Irishman, definitely worth a watch. I can see why people are watching it over like two or three days, though. And I don't even think that interrupts the experience all that much. <laughs> on the other hand, Six Underground, I cannot recommend in any way whatsoever. Uh, I'm not the world's biggest Michael Bay fan to begin with, but this one feels... A little, eh, even by his standards. I'm amazed that that has talented people attached to it. It's very strange. Yeah, well, it's a big ensemble cast. The idea of this movie is there are people that have decided to use their extraordinary skills to rid the world of evil. And to do that, they have to fake their deaths and become living ghosts. So they can join a squad of elite assassins, thieves, drivers, whatever. Uh, and help Ryan Reynolds carry out a series of heists, attacks, assassinations to try and usurp a dictator. And that's a Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick movie, too. So it's like, okay, a decent premise. Yeah, premise works. That can totally make something like that deliver. And Michael Bay can do good whenever he has a good script. It, It gives him a lot of opportunities for action. Uh, There's a big car chase at the start of the movie that's engaging, but it all kind of goes downhill after that. And the movie is told in a very frustrating fashion where about 40 minutes of its two-hour runtime is a giant flashback. Like Ryan Reynolds starts off at one spot and he's like, hold on, we had a mission before this and it didn't go well. Let's flash back to that. And then let's flash a little more. And then let's tell you this backstory. So it really feels like the first hour of the movie is just Ryan Reynolds explaining exposition and showing you flashbacks to get you caught up so you can watch the movie proper. And then once all that's over, the movie proper is not that fun. <laughs> also, Ryan Reynolds is playing Ryan Reynolds. It's, it's just the patented Ryan Reynolds sarcastic action character now. And in, in a weird thematic thing, Ryan Reynolds' character, when he was not a ghost, was a genius inventor who made billions of dollars off of his magnet inventions <laughs> basically the movie the movie sets so him up random. like he invented neodymium magnets that are used in all technology so he's a, mil- a billionaire that nobody knows about because who could name the guy who invented something that small but he decides to fake his own death and form the squad and then uses billions of dollars to finance them because he doesn't believe the government can affect proper change by itself because there's too much red tape. Yeah, like there's just this very weird (laughs) Michael Bay. The government government is evil through like just their own limitations and they can't do what needs to be done. We should trust these billionaires to save us. All we need is a good billionaire to go and take out the bad guys. (laughs) There's such like a huge moral quandary here. No one questions anything that Ryan Reynolds decides really other than Ryan Reynolds thinks if someone on the team is in danger, they should be left to die. And that's like his big emotional turning point when they convince him like, no, you should care about your team. You shouldn't live like a ghost. You need emotional attachment to people. But they, okay. they don't okay. question him murdering people or like going after <laughs> heads of state or anything like that. That doesn't matter. War crimes are fine as long as they're bad people that we determine are bad. I'm sorry. You, you sold me on this movie when you said somebody pulls Ryan Reynolds aside and says, come on, Ryan Reynolds, you don't have to be a ghost. Uh, that line was not verbatim, unfortunately. The movie does a weird thing where it has like a funny action beat and is playing a soundtrack that is like half of it is composed of Muse songs from their newest soundtrack or album, I believe. And then it stops on a dime when someone is in danger and goes into overly dramatic, serious territory. And it starts playing, like, the goddamn Gladiator soundtrack. <laughs> See, like, the I... sad moment where he's just walking through the grain all of a sudden. This, it's that. It's, it's so frustrating because it just switches back and forth at a, a second's notice. See, I feel like 
Michael Bay in a world without studio notes is like giving a great white shark heroin. (laughs) It's really true. Michael Bay needs to be contained as much as humanly possible. He doesn't need a blank canvas. That's the thing about Netflix. They, these movies are given homes. No one else would give. And it feels like the creators are given a lot of creative reign, which in itself is a super cool idea. We all think to ourselves, oh, if it wasn't for the studio and their notes, just imagine how great movie Y or X would have been. We can probably name a hundred movies that were killed and then saved later on when there was a director's cut that was put out. But in this case, you kind of see like, oh, maybe some of those boundaries or studio notes aren't always bad. Like 600 Ground, I can't recommend as a fun movie or a great action movie or anything. I feel like if this went to a theater and was produced by like Fox, they would have told him a couple of things like, hey... The audiences who saw the test screens didn't care for X, Y, and Z. Go pl- fix those players or like cut out 20 minutes or reshoot this or that. And with Netflix, things just kind of get put out there. It's almost like uh, the Canon film group with tons of money. <laughs> I don't even know how Netflix producing works. They, I'm assuming they just basically go like, oh, you need $30 million? Here you go. Don't go over budget. Your movie is due at this time. Please report back then with it. Which is weirdly, like, that's the environment that so many filmmakers have been dreaming of, like, since the dawn of film. Yeah. I'm very curious how that's going to play out, like, directors essentially working in a vacuum. And again, you you hear so many horror stories about bad studio notes. Just, Just last night, I was listening to a commentary with Neil Gaiman on Good Omens. That's obviously for Amazon, so a little different situation. But Neil Gaiman was talking about And huge spoilers for the end of that show. If you've never read or seen Good Omens, please stop paying attention for the next two minutes. I'll time you. Anyways, the the studio came back to Neil Gaiman and said, hey, Crowley looks at his Bentley, but doesn't get in it in the last episode, and he takes a cab. That's kind of weird. That doesn't seem in character. And Neil Gaiman is just like banging his head against the wall, because at that point, Crowley has switched appearances with his angel friend. And that's supposed to be a tell to the audience that it's no longer Crowley. It's it's a little head nod like, hey, this is the switcheroo that saves the last episode when they get abducted by their people. The thing they know if they kept watching a few minutes. That's a Neil Gaiman said. He's like, they had read the scripts. I don't understand why they were confused. <laughs> so sometimes like, yeah, studio notes, very bad. In other oh. cases, though, you got to think, looking back at Star Wars, if they just let George Lucas do anything he wanted on that movie... Would that have been a success? Oh, we would have gotten the Journal of the Wills. We basically would have gotten David Lynch's Dune, but from George Lucas. Yeah, like George Lucas had a lot of freedom with Star Wars, but he still had the studio like asking him for certain things or pushing certain ideas. And I think that made a huge difference in that movie. So you can't Harrison Ford just saying, George, I'm not going to say this. (laughs) He had the right. You should have. So sometimes a little bit of control or just creative irons, I think, are needed to make sure a film works. I don't know. So those those are two of the movies I saw. Last one I want to comment on before I turn the reins over to you, Jamie, for a minute. Dolomite is my name. I started my day with this, and it was the best of the bunch. <laughs> I fucking love that of those three, Dolomite reigns supreme. Rudy Raymore would be so happy. Like it's it's just a wonderful biopic. The performances are so good. It's funny. It's it's heartfelt without being schmaltzy. It's it's two hours long, but it flies by. Eddie Murphy probably gives the performance of his career. It is so good. Oh, Eddie Murphy was put on this earth to play Rudy Ray Moore. Like this might be the most well cast biopic ever. There's. One moment I want to touch on. Oh, sorry. Uh, it's been three minutes. If you tuned out for the good omen spoilers, come on back. I'm going to spoil Dolomite. Guys, guys, come in. Come in. Come in. <laughs> now get back out. If you haven't seen Dolomite, is my name. Uh, it's actually not a huge spoiler. There, there's one character interaction I want to discuss for just a second. A woman approaches Eddie Murphy, and, and basically she's in tears just saying, hey, this movie meant so much to me. You know, growing up watching films, I never saw a woman like me on screen. And it's it's just great that I get to be up on the screen this time. And Eddie Murphy plays it amazingly. Like, you can kind of see he's a little teary-eyed, but he's not crying. He doesn't make a big speech or anything. He gives her the moment, and then he just puts his arm out. They go arm in arm, walking down the street, and they start singing, like, this Baudry song that they sang earlier in the movie. 
about fucking and it's hilarious and tender and beautiful it's such a great character moment and it's just it's heartwarming it's stunning i love it dolomite is my name one of the one of the best movies i really saw all year i love whenever eddie murphy resurfaces like once or twice a decade to remind everyone that he's capable of more than norbit (laughs) think about this is a weird year for comedy stars we've got dolomite is my name proving that eddie murphy fucking knows what he's doing and then we also have adam sandler putting on a goddamn acting clinic in uncut gems (laughs) and god it's just nice to see craig brewer doing something with being craig brewer again because i thought that (laughs) footloose remake put him in the ground really in one day just watching those three movies i got a whole range of different emotions from netflix if everything they put out was dolomite is my name Goddamn, Netflix could charge 20 bucks a month and it'd be worth it. If everything was six underground, I would cancel my subscription tomorrow. And if it was all the Irishmen, I still would have a hard time complaining. So uh, overall, that airs towards quality. That's the thing that's fascinating about Netflix as a brand as well as a distributor, because it's so neutral. Like on the D&D alignment chart, it is true neutral. (laughs) like netflix you gotta watch it to know yeah netflix doesn't mean quality it doesn't mean schlock netflix is movies movies period (laughs) that's a very nice way to think of it that should be on their ad campaign netflix movies also a shit ton of tv the tv might be better than the movies (laughs) the tv's probably better than the movies but that's that's a whole different story we're not getting into that jamie what's what's the most recent thing you've seen on netflix like netflix produced content as far as movies go, the most recent thing I watched, I actually just finished watching this the night before last, was a movie that really knocked me off my feet, which is Cam. I have no idea what that is. Yeah, this was a fucking sleeper. The only reason I knew it existed is it gained a little bit of a following among horror fans. Like a lot of uh, horror bloggers have been talking about it. I believe John Squires on Bloody Disgusting like did a little write-up of it which is where it first caught my eye. Cam is essentially perfect blue if instead of being about a Japanese pop idol, it were about a cam girl. Hmm. And all of the parallels you can draw from that premise. (laughs) It's kind of surprising we don't see more of that in a kind of a gritty sense. Just thinking of stuff like Videodrome back in the 80s and 90s. Just movies based on the kind of grittier aspects of the internet age. Yeah, especially whenever it comes to pornography and sex work. Like, there's so much discussion now about parasocial relationships with social media stars and things like creator burnout, the need to constantly top one another, like being expected to basically live your life as half of a reality show in addition to the content you put out. But one of the places, like, that stuff is magnified to an astonishing degree is sex work. Like, you think YouTubers get weird (laughs) stalkers. Fucking cam girls have to hide their identity. You're you're giving me terrible pictures in my head of PewDiePie. I don't want them. (laughs) Which is the divide, too, between personality and the performance. Because there's so much of streaming where it's supposed to be, oh, I like this person because I get to see what they really like, just doing a thing they enjoy. Whereas you have to expect some of that is performance for the camera, even if the camera is rolling for just a gigantic amount of time. Yeah, which is something that Cam uh, explores very well. Like I said, the plot is essentially perfect blue. An internet porn star who's like struggling to balance her very normal, very like boring day-to-day life with friends and family with the fact that she has to spend her working hours as this unattainable sex kitten just suddenly finds out that the sex kitten version of herself is just acting independently. (laughs) Oh no. And even more so than Perfect Blue, that movie goes down a rabbit hole of like all the things that could go wrong with that premise. Like I don't want to go into too much spoiler territory because No, it's okay. I've already ruined Dolomite. You can go ahead and ruin Cam. You ruined it with those emotions. It was beautiful, I tell you. But there's a scene where she's watching her doppelganger act out a cam show live in what appears to be her own house, even though she's currently in it. 
and she starts spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars tipping her to make her hurt herself while sitting like sitting in her living room which is still like brightly lit with like the youtube christmas lights and everything and like it's this lengthy lengthy sequence where you see it go from i have to see if this is real to okay i had to see how far i can push this to i want to make this person who looks like me suffer for reasons i can't quantify and that is fucking dark that is pure horror yeah, it goes back to the idea if you ever met a clone of yourself would you fight or fuck Personally, in this case I do both possibly both yeah no just bloody murder also this sounds uh, uh like a whole lot like a lost highway type situation oh yeah it, it gets lynchian in places there there's some kind of hidden gems i think in the horror realm of netflix i mean everyone thinks of stuff like uh bird box and then stranger things stranger things to an extent but they've got some other good ones in there that are kind of hidden. Like, uh, did you ever see The Perfection? I did not. That's, I won't say a great horror movie. It's it's a little bit on the border between horror and thriller. But I think it's worth checking out because it goes in kind of some weird, unexpected places where uh, basically a woman was abused by a family and she grew up trying to become the perfect violinist and the things get twisted from there. I, I really can't describe any of the plot without accidentally giving away details, so I have to leave it incredibly vague. But it is like a very... You feel uncomfortable during huge portions of this movie, and this character who... Again, I can't say it. It just ruins parts of the movie. God damn it. Just go watch The Perfection. It's not perfect, but it's it's definitely weird, and it'll make you feel uncomfortable. There's some interesting ways it shifts perspective back and forth, where you think, oh, this is a good person. Oh, maybe it's a bad person. Is that the bad guy? Is this a good person? And it, it takes until pretty much the final act before you realize how it's all coming together. And I enjoyed the twists and turns that it offered. Plus, there, there's stuff... Um, surprisingly, I'm having a far, hard time finding this on the Netflix list, so it might not have been made by Netflix, maybe just distributed by them. But The Ritual, uh, which Mike made us promise we would talk about... <laughs> So I'm just bringing that up now. The Ritual really is fantastic. I adore The Ritual. Like, stop the podcast and go watch it. That's how much we love The Ritual. It's so good. It, it might as well just do a whole episode on that. Uh, imagine kind of a Blair Witch Project meets Kill List in, in terms of aesthetic. It's not handheld camera or anything like that, but it's men out in the woods and spooky shit start ha starts happening. The way I've always pitched it to friends is imagine the descent with men in the woods. Like that same kind of tone of you're mostly just seeing friends with a strained relationship deal with stress badly. <laughs> like very psychological and very like the horror is mostly in the margins for a big chunk of the movie. Oh, yeah. We really don't get the full on reveal of the creature until late in the movie. It's, it's an old school creature feature in that sense. But when the creature does feature, oh, my God. It's a cool, unique design. That I gotta give it that. We need more stuff based off Norse here. mythology. Yeah, Video games seem to get it now. God of War 4 is all about that. I don't understand why movies aren't all about that. There's a deep well of weird monsters and creatures and designs they could be using. Less it's... tentacle monsters, more antler people. See, a thing I dislike with monster design, like, I don't think this is bad, but I think it's overused. When people just take a thing that exists in nature and amplifies it. Like, you can do great stuff with that, but that's always a little boring with me. I love that the monster in the ritual looks like nothing. It has antlers. That's, like, the only recognizable thing. <laughs> like, it's very annihilation in its design. Like, it feels like something alien and something you're not supposed to be looking at. It makes you very uncomfortable in close-ups. Yeah. That's another one. Uh, apparently, there is a Blu-ray of the Ritual, but it's it's not in English. It, it's like you have to import like a disc from South America or something like that. Something weird. Uh, I'm I'm gonna have to find out if it's Region One or not. I was gonna but, say if that's like dubbed in Swedish or something, I feel like that would improve the movie. That'd be an interesting choice. Although the characters from that are all supposed to be from like London, right? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, folks, if you haven't seen the Ritual. You got to go check it out. It's it's free. It's on Netflix. You got to do it. Yeah. If you love monster movies, see it. You love slow burn, relationship heavy horror, see it. If you're into stuff that's 
vaguely Lovecraftian without really going into the weeds with lore, absolutely see it. And I would I would recommend the same for Apostle, which is one I feel like got kind of ignored. It came out, it should have been big, there was a marketing push behind it, but didn't didn't seem like it really caught on with horror fans even. Yeah, it's one of the, one of those where like you see a couple of bloggers talking about it and there's like there's definitely a fan base, but it doesn't it didn't really take genre fans by storm like everyone assumed it would. And it had a lot of cred going for it. This was uh Dan Stevens in in 2018, so Beauty and the Beast period where he was known. Uh Gareth Evans directed it. That's a huge deal. It's even got Michael Sheen. Like it has known stars in this thing. And and yet I don't know, maybe because it was a little bit on the long side, it didn't quite connect with folks. It, it's a slightly over two hours long. It's a period piece. A lot of the horror isn't super direct. Like, a lot of it's built up with, okay, there's something definitely wrong with this situation. It feels culty. There, There's some sort of supernatural presence throughout the entire thing, undoubtedly, but you don't see a lot of the examples directly until closer to the end. But I, I like that build. It's 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 sad because this is a movie that's, not probably great for parties, but it seems like such a good horror film. Like, I, you just got to go watch it on your own some dark night. And it does have a lot of those Lovecraftian kind of feelings to it. Totally different, though. This one's on an island in, like, the 1800s, so it's a, it's a very different feel from The Ritual. I feel weird saying Netflix doesn't get enough attention. <laughs> I feel like people are kind of turning a blind eye to what a powerful horror distributor Netflix has become, like in addition to the 100 other things they've done. And their horror is oddly, like more so than anything they produce, their horror has a distinct character to it. Like with all the movies we've talked about so far from uh, Netflix's horror catalog, they all lean way further towards psychology and suspense rather than any kind of spectacle. And <laughs> Go back to what we said before. I think because they don't necessarily have a studio telling them, hey, you have to have a scare every 10 pages and there has to be something. You have to show the monster on page 10. I I don't think that a lot of Netflix creators have those bounds so they don't have to do horror movies in the same cookie cutter way that a lot of studio productions would. Look Look at something like 1922. That's technically a horror movie, but it has maybe like one or two jumps in the entire thing. It's it's more like a drama that happens to have horror elements, or even something like Gerald's Game. Not outright horrific, but a terrifying idea that sticks fairly close to ideas that Stephen King presented. Like God, could you imagine like Universal or somebody I don't know like producing Gerald's Game and that going to theaters? Hell no. The the like Midnight Man, Midnight Killer, whatever. The the bad guy in that movie would have a whole bunch of intercut scenes that don't connect of him just murdering people in the neighborhood before he finally gets to the house. I think uh, one of the reasons for that aesthetic, like obviously, I imagine budget does play a big part in it, but oh yeah, I honestly think that's the split between theatrical horror and streaming horror. Whenever people go out to see a horror movie, even if they're genre fans and they appreciate the more slow build stuff, you still want a little bit of a fireworks show. Like you're going out to see a horror movie, you want to get smacked in the face with something. But like you were saying earlier with your experience with the Irishman, just putting it on the background and kind of moseying about the house and uh, doing whatever, that's perfect for slow build horror. Like there's something about putting on a movie like Apostle or Gerald's Game or anything Mike Flanagan's done, really, and just being at home with it. Yeah. There's something like The the Invitation. Could you imagine sitting through that in theaters? Like, people, I imagine, in mass would get restless with that movie. But at home, it doesn't feel wrong that it's a slow burn up to the action happening in the last 20. Yeah, I think that's something you can get away with way more with a home viewing rather than theatrical. Like, I, th- I think audiences are way more forgiving of pacing. Oh, yeah. They haven't felt like they've taken time out of their valuable day <laughs> to drive somewhere and be entertained by something. Like, audiences are way more forgiving of that kind of stuff. Well, and let's be honest, too. A lot of people are probably popping these movies on before they fall asleep, so they might have to rewind 20 minutes of it, or they only half remember 30 minutes of it because they're in and out of sleep. Or maybe they're loading the dishwasher, or whatever the fuck else. 
and this isn't a judgment. Like you're living your life and the movie's on the background because you're interested, but you've got chores to do. You can't just sit down necessarily and spend two and a half hours watching a slow burn movie. Oh God. And speaking of Mike Flanagan, hardly anybody ever talks about Hush and oh my God, watch Hush. <laughs> that one had a lot of buzz when it came out, but it's another, it, it vanished. Which is a shame. There's so many things Netflix has pumped out that, good or not, buzzy or not at the moment, were forgotten about two months later. Like, here's one, Jamie. Remember the Velvet Buzzsaw? That was a social media sensation for a week. That came out in February. This year. Like, granted, that's the start of the year, but wow. we Nobody talks about the Velvet Buzzsaw now. Well, that's the fucking uh, double-edged sword of just releasing something immediately, like... If it's not playing in theaters, then people aren't really going back to see it. Like people will watch something when the iron's hot, like when it's a meme. And just think too, there there's so many times where I think we remember movies because we saw a trailer for it forty times over the past six months in theaters for other things. Like there's a lot of movies I know quite a bit about just because I've seen the same goddamn trailers so many times that I haven't watched. Like I could tell you a decent amount of information about like Richard Jewell. Because I saw that trailer so many times. Meanwhile, Netflix loves to release a trailer like a week before something comes out. Yeah, that's really it. Like the Velvet Buzzsaw. I didn't know that existed until probably two weeks before the movie came out, if I'm remembering right. All of a sudden, like on Gizmodo, they're just posting a story. Hey, check out this trailer. It's going to be coming to Netflix soon. It's a horror movie. So you watch that. It's like, oh shit. Why Why was there no buzz? Why was there no buzz? Velvet Buzzsaw eyes. Yeah. See what I did there. What? <laughs> Nice pun. So. Oh, God, I walked in. This is like stepping on a rake. It just hurts. I'm glad it affected you, finally. Uh, I hate it. Uh, man, but why? It just feels so weird they don't promote things in advance. They treat their product so much like it's ephoral. Like, it, it's just going to vanish. And to that effect, it does. They don't right. treat it like something concrete that's going to be there forever, even if it's in their library forever. It just shows up. It hits their algorithms for the however two weeks, whatever they track it for, and then it gets replaced. Well, Netflix seems to think that it doesn't have to put a significant amount of money into marketing because it's already in your living room, so you're just going to see it, which is not true. There is so much stuff on there. Like I've heard stories of people having to search through the app to find Six Underground, that gigantic movie that was just released. I remember when the last season of Jessica Jones premiered, I had to go into the search engine to find that. And I don't think anything else premiered that week. Like that was their thing for that week. And it was buried. And you, you hear about YouTubers like ripping their hair out over things they worked so hard on getting buried by the algorithm. Could you imagine your multi-million dollar movie? That might be <laughs> the la your last shot at making it getting killed by the algorithm. Oh, don't worry. It'll live forever. Just no one will find it. It's it's like a fossil, but worse. <laughs> I, can't, I, I would love to see a movie with a tagline, like a fossil, but worse. Simmer down, Grandpa. But a logline for Tammy, the Tammy and the T-Rex R-rated cut. <laughs> I'm very excited for that. I can't wait. Uh, but yeah, thinking of talking about things that were just kind of buried and forgotten about, I feel that's like the situation that happened to the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. That that movie came out November 16th, and right before that was The Outlaw King, which for some reason got a fair amount of buzz, but I don't think anyone watched. And then Roma came out December 14th and stole all of the Oscar buzz. And then Bird Box came out December 21st and stole all of the actual internet discussion. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs is a fascinating film, though. It's Could you imagine if some insane person financed this movie and put it in theaters? Uh, there would have been walkouts as soon as Tim Blake Nelson's singing angel floated out of his body and then recited an entire full-length song. No one would have understood what was happening here. We have an anthology film that's not just telling different stories. It's different types of Western all mixed together. We have a prospecting story with Tom Waits by himself acting like a lunatic. We have a singing cowboy piece. With Tim Blake Nelson? A singing cowboy piece that gets psychotically violent out of nowhere. Like, it just becomes Preacher for a minute. He just murders the hell out of people and just does it with a smile on his face and a song in his heart. 
And it, it, it also includes a dark, weird, like acid Western almost Coen brothers, authentically Coen brothers. This could have been any one of their movies piece where just two bounty hunters are discussing death with a group of other people in a carriage that don't quite understand what's happening. That ends on like a weird mythological note. Like, is, is this purgatory? Are we in hell? Is this the afterlife? Is this limbo? Or is it just a spooky hotel that they're sharing with murderers? Liam Neeson just hangs out with a limbless boy and grows tired of him. You mean Dudley? <laughs> That's my favorite fact about the movie. Dudley from Harry Potter is now very thin. Also, he has no limbs. And it took me a long time to wrap my head around that these were the same people. I actually did not know that until just now. Like, God. Now we can sell this movie. Let's put it this way. There is so much on Netflix that when I think of the Buster Scruggs film, I forget Liam Neeson is in it. It's not a bad segment of the film. I'm just, I, I blank it out because there are a hundred other things on Netflix. There, there are so many TV shows. There's constantly new documentaries, new TV shows, new movies, stuff they've produced. Weird shorts. Um, God, I can't even remember the name. It's, what is it? Frankenstein's Monster? <laughs> Uh, Frankenstein's Monsters, Monster Frankenstein, a.k.a. David Harbour Saw Dark Place. It's amazing, and it's just a weird 30-minute TV special that has no right to exist, and if Netflix wasn't around, it would never have a home. This is the kind of weird-ass project that someone thinks of, laughs about, and then throws away because it doesn't have any commercial value anywhere. See, that's what gets me. Whenever people talk about Netflix, like like it's YouTube, like, oh, all their movies are just chasing trends and algorithms. Can you name a movie less commercial than The Ballad of Buster Scruggs? <laughs> <laughs> there, there's so much on Netflix where I watch it and I go, I don't think there was an audience for this. I think they were just throwing it out there to see if there happened to be one. They were try they were fishing for an audience. They're trying to make an audience, more or less, I guess. There, there's so many weird-ass things on Netflix. You kind of have to wonder, what was this ever made with any ploy towards marketability? Or was it just, hey, this is something new to put on our channel so it looks like we're producing things constantly? You can't tell me I'm the pretty thing that lives in the house was designed in any sense to bring in audiences. That's a fascinating piece of horror. But again, outside of Shudder, that's not the piece that's going to tell people like, oh, I should spend 12 bucks a month on Netflix. That's the magic of that. Like, they know they've already got you. So they know, like, they can just throw the most niche shit in the world at you. It's like you watching a, a movie you didn't like is not going to make or break, like, whether or not you have a Netflix subscription. That's true. Once they got your credit card, you're just going to leave it. It's going to take a lot for you to be like, nope, I'm I'm done. And as long as there's new movies coming in, I think we're happy. Like, sure, I didn't really love Death Note, but it was kind of interesting to see. I'm glad Adam Wingard got a new movie. And I'll just move on. Gerald's Game came out, you know, like a month later. Love that. Cool. So I'm back on the hook. And then there's Bright, which I, again, hated. So, you know, didn't cancel my subscription. Just just kept keeping on, hoping something next would be maybe good. Although I should say... Uh, according to Wikipedia, it was bright in December 22nd, garbage. Then the open house, January 19th, garbage. Then the Cloverfield Paradox, February 4th, garbage. That one got a Super Bowl commercial, which, boy, that was a hell of a stunt. Uh, I don't know what Irreplaceable U is, so I'll give it the benefit of the doubt and assume it's alright. Followed by Mute, which I did not care for. Like, and that's sad, I because I was very garbage, excited for Mute. But it didn't work. Yeah. And that's the other thing. These were all big swings. It's not like Bright was necessarily lazy. This was someone trying something big and weird that just didn't work. Netflix had a streak of movies I think of as not good in any way that were all at least making big efforts. And because they're on Netflix, I think of them as free, so I can't be too mad. Yeah, but you sit through like a stream of duds like that, and then you get something like Okja, which is just like... I, I almost feel wrong watching that in my house. Like, I feel like I should have, like, I feel like if I owned that on Blu-ray, I would feel odd watching that in my house. Like, it's so <laughs> it, majestic. It is one of those. Sometimes Netflix gets that kind of stuff where it's like, well, how did you, it, did you make this? Did you steal this? <laughs> 
did, did you see Bong Joon-ho walking with the work print of Okja and you just mugged him? Is that what just happened? beat him up. He's like, fine, I'll make Parasite next. You can't stop me. And then Netflix couldn't get their mitts on him next time, so it went to theaters. Yeah, it's like, We're still after Snowpiercer. We'll get you still. I love how a company like Netflix can just say, yeah, you want to make R-rated My Neighbor Totoro? Fine. <laughs> put put Tilda Swinton in as many funny wigs as you can. <laughs> we'll sort it out. Don't worry. Like you have like grand majestic stuff like that. And then you have stuff like Dude, which is a Netflix high school comedy. I've never seen anyone bring up. I just found it on a whim one day. Uh, I didn't know that was a deal. When did that come out? That was, uh, I believe, early 2017. Hmm. I get lost because this damn wiki page is divided between dramas and comedies. Which, again, doesn't make sense because, like, they have comedy dramas listed underneath drama. They have war films under drama, horror films under drama. I don't know why comedy got separated completely in this listing. Whoever made this wiki page was evil. (laughs) And it's just a small little comedy from the writer of Ocean's 8. Starring Alexandra Ship and Aquafina. Huh. And there's nothing that spectacular about it. It's just a really nice small movie where a bunch of stoner chicks in high school hang out. And everyone's really nice and it's really sex positive and it has probably the most realistic portrayal of people who smoke pot I've ever seen in a comedy, which is they're just smoking pot in scenes, and that's about as far as they go with it. <laughs> they're not oh, yeah, like, they're running to White school. Castle and getting into hijinks or being arrested? Like, oh yeah, it's it's a high school in 2017. Of course they're smoking pot in the bathroom. <laughs> that, that's just life. Uh, I, I love how like, you really do get a little bit of everything. Like, I hate to turn this into a commercial for Netflix, a... Don't do it. ...aceless multinational corporation, which I'm sure is very evil. I'm sure it's run on the blood of murdered puppies. But I love that there's a place out there in the world that can somehow contain Tim Blake Nelson as a singing cowboy, the monstrous deer thing from The Ritual... And like 17 Adam Sandler movies, each more offensive than the last. Well, I was going to bring those up, but I'm, I'm glad we can skip over those now. Like, once again, it's like, it's movies. Just movies. Period. That's a more beautiful sentiment than I could ever come up with myself. And I think we have to wrap it up on that note, because there are hundreds of these movies. And get, folks at home, just go poke around at some of these stuff Netflix has made. You'll, you got to find something you love in there that you didn't even know existed. How about the Polka King? You, you like Jack Black? You like maybe you like Polka? Like true crime? That subgenre that Jack Black has navigated towards? Check I, it out. I feel I like I have Jack- stakes in the Polka King now. I do not. I haven't even seen the Polka King personally. I'll, I'll admit that. I love that Jack Black's two things following his mu- music career have been becoming a beloved children's star and true crime biopics. <laughs> really Whatever it takes. I have. Hey, I take that. Just those two things, and let's plays. That's all he needs. We stand a king, I believe, as the kids say. And now that I've said that, no one should ever listen to me again because I pander to the young audiences who will never embrace me. I'll never be hip or trendworthy. Good, I took the nice things you said, and now I made them sad and about me. So let's end this episode. Folks, thank you so much for listening to us rant like old, confused people about the changing nature of the entertainment industry. Netflix, that's a thing weird, isn't it? That's your too-long-didn't-listen recap of the episode. But if you somehow enjoyed this episode, you can find more of Box Office Pulp on Stitcher, iTunes, uh, Facebook, Blogger, even Twitter. Just look for Box Office Pulp. We even have our own website, boxofficepulp.com. Go ahead, check us out. We have more in-depth analysis of random pop culture, mostly movie-focused, and even commentaries on our favorite movies. Mike probably does some of his stuff. I don't know. He has a job or something on the side now. I don't know. He's not here to tell you about it. So the Horror Hub? Who? I never heard of it. You don't got to go there. Look, you didn't hear it from me, but that man is made of farts. Entirely? Entirely. He doesn't even have skin. He's just a cloud of farts. God, you think you know a guy.
It's fantastic when Mike's not around and not editing the episode because I can finally let the truth out. That's the real reason I recorded this episode. I just had to let everyone in the world know that my co-host is a living fart man. And that's the real Netflix original release. Anyways, folks, that's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. And like that, he's gone. Uh, before we close out this after credit scene, we didn't talk about The Babysitter. Folks at home, go see, go, go watch The Babysitter. It's the best McGee movie that's ever going to exist. Oh, I adore The Babysitter. It is so much fun. It's weirdly sweet in places. And Robbie Amell is just shirtless the entire time. There you go. I think we should end more episodes on me just going, there you go. Can we I make that a catchphrase? <laughs> and have it like my stupid face on shirts with that saying. That's what I was about to say, just you with a thumbs up. Me like with my like head reclined back, so I got a double chin, just Arr! a little bit of drool coming out of my mouth. I like movies. <laughs> would you would you go see Living Fart Man? See, I'm not picturing a movie. I'm picturing like a Rob Zombie music video. <laughs> uh, I was thinking this would be like Evil Bong. You know, like one of those things you see on Hulu randomly. Like, oh, oh fuck, what the fuck? That is totally a Charles Band product. How is like in a world where a monster exists, how has <laughs> Man not been like had seventeen sequels by now? Oh god, we just threw that out there just to make fun of Mike for not being on this episode because he's celebrating with his family. <laughs> how dare he not defend himself? <laughs> Living Fart Man, check it out. It's a co-production with Blumhouse. Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.